Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on War Room. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Army War College, and I'm here today with Dr. Larry Goodson, Professor of Middle East Studies at the Army War College, where he teaches courses in strategy, national security policy, and South Asian studies. This podcast is part of an occasional series on great strategic thinkers and important historical and theoretical works about war and strategy. Today, we want to introduce you to a theorist and writer whom you may not have encountered before, even if you've been in the defense and security community for many years. Today, Dr. Goodson is joining us to talk about Kautilya, who is writing in India in the 4th century BCE, but I won't steal too much of his thunder by telling you more. So we'll open with uh, the common question for these, which is, what do we as readers or students of strategy or strategists need to know about this author and this text uh, in order to understand it? So thank you, Jackie. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Kautilya is, uh, as you as you mentioned, little known, also known probably more commonly to Indians as Chanakya, uh, or sometimes as uh, Vishnugupta. Uh, Kautilya is thought to have been the first minister or prime minister to the great Indian uh, emperor Chandragupta, uh, who founded the Mauryan Empire uh, in the time period that you mentioned, about 4th century BCE. Um, Kautilya, in many respects, is sort of like, and he has been called this, uh, title of a, of, of, of a book about him, uh, the Indian Machiavelli. He, he, he is a statecraft uh, theorist and advisor. He's advising the Indian leader at the time how to become a king and then how to rule uh, as, uh, as a king or as a ruler. Um, and, and to do so, he, he, he emphasizes what we call using all elements of the dime, right? D diplomacy, information, military, economics, but back in this much earlier time, roughly contemporary, contemporary in history to Sun Tzu or Thucydides, a little bit behind both of them uh, in, in terms of being a little, a little bit uh, more recent. But um, he, he comes across as someone who is telling you to use all the elements of national power to achieve your national goals. It's in that context that he writes in his primary work, the Arthashastra, um, a science of politics or a science of political uh, economy. That's how it's usually translated. Uh, and he's advising the king how to, how to pull all those things together to achieve national goals. So is it, is it like Machiavelli in the period of state consolidation, even though we tend to not talk about states before much, much later in, say, European history? Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, the, the context is really important. At that period in Indian history, there were a bunch of small city-states or, or political entities in sort of the northern part of what is present-day India and on into present-day Pakistan and Bangladesh. 
and and uh, he's trying to teach his young charge Chandragupta how to how to uh, both survive and conquer other states and create this larger political entity what what becomes the Mauryan Empire but which we can think of as a big state um, where where but where all the people who live within it can can sort of live better lives so it, it's very much uh, a, a treatise about how to govern well and how governing well will allow you to then grow bigger and stronger against other uh, adversaries uh, within the sort of the existing uh, regional or world order uh, of that time. Great. So in this book about statecraft, very broadly, are there particular parts or pieces of it where Kautilya talks about the relationship of war to statecraft or what we would think about as, as the, the sort of fighting or the kinetic aspects? Sure, absolutely. So the book itself is divided into 15 books, if you will, or, or uh, large sections. Um, one of them in particular deals with the conduct of war. There's some others that deal with intelligence and uh, and uh, rule of law and a lot dealing with uh, economics and so forth. Um, so it's a it's a broad book, but there is one in particular that goes into war. Uh, in one section of the Arthashastra, um, there is discussion of three types of war. In another section, there's a discussion of four types of war. Um, and then elsewhere, he enjoins the ruler to avoid war. Um, and so there's some confusion in the way that, you know, the, the way that the, the concept of war is introduced. And it's, it's introduced in several different ways. What I think he's saying when he says to avoid war is to avoid one of the four types, let's call them four types of war, that he talks about, which is open war, which is the uh, functional equivalent to the present day conventional combat operations. Um, he's saying, uh, there's another chapter on the sixfold royal or foreign policy where he, he is advising the ruler how to um, actually achieve your goals um, short of using war. You only use war in one of the six cases that he sort of sets forth. Um, and by that he means open war. Because open war, he's very clear, is very expensive. There's a whole section on <laughs> the maintenance and the use of war elephants, uh, you know, sort of very contextual <laughs> to the time. But, but we, war is costly. War is costly and war and elephants. And risky. And right. risky. And war, element, war elephant, elephants, rather, are maybe the functional equivalent to sort of aircraft battle uh, uh, groups, uh, aircraft carrier battle groups, or, you know, tank formations or aircraft or something like that. Risky to use them, costly to use them, and you really don't want to do all that unless you, you're, the conditions are aligned perfectly for that to be uh, uh, successful. He also talks about concealed war, which, by which he means sort of guerrilla war, 
Uh, he also talks about silent war, by which he means using secret agents and spies and assassins to try to, uh, uh, you know, not only gather information but undermine through assassination or other uh, means of direct action uh, an enemy leadership. And then the part that I find really interesting is that he also talks about war by counsel, by which he means using diplomats to make treaties when you are weak relative to another state. So you buy yourself some time by making a treaty with that uh, government, knowing full well that you're going to break it a little bit later on when you're stronger relative to that other power. He sees all of these in one of his views of war as types of war. So sort of violence, the threat of violence, managed by by the state or by a, a ruler in service of of a larger political object but but only one of those is it, he says avoid entirely if at all possible you or avoid you avoid open you war yeah because it's expensive and risky as you say i i think the important thing to keep in mind it goes back to your earlier question about sort of the context of the time He's considered the first great political realist. Um, this is a treatise, uh, most uh, international relations scholars consider it a treatise of sort of unvarnished realism. It's based on the, the notion that your relationship with your neighbors is sort of intrinsically potentially contentious, right? Because they have land and resources that you might want, you have land and resources that they might want, and you're bordering right up against each other. Um, and consequently, he, he essentially sees the world through the prism of conquer or be conquered, that you're always going to have to be offensively out there as a realist because your neighbor is going to be doing that uh, towards you. And, and you have to, you have to be uh, uh, willing to conquer your, your neighbor. And so another great principle from his uh, text is what is often described as an Arab proverb, uh, which is, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's actually from the Artha Shastra. And in it, it he sort of, that, that sort of underpins his mandala theory of, uh, of relations with your neighbors, that if you're my neighbor, you're my, uh, I, sort of intrinsically, we're going to be adversaries. Whoever lives beyond you is going to intrinsically be my ally because they're also intrinsically your, your adversary. And, if, and once we conquer you, Jackie, then we're going to... Then the to next, <laughs> then the ally becomes the... The, the adversary. The adversary and, yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah. So you always have to have your eye several steps ahead, keeping the, the sort of whole system in, in mind. Yeah, you do, yeah. Is, is, the, is the Arthashastra something that people can just pick up and read? Or should they, should they sort of approach it slowly or gradually or, or not at all? Should they, should they just read about Kaltilia's ideas? It's probably easier to read about the ideas. It's a, it's a long text. It's also a dense text. It went missing around the 12th century uh, Christian era 
um, and was missing until the beginning of the 20th century when it was found. Um, and so you're translating from early Sanskrit, which is sort of grammatically and syntactically and in lots of ways different from English, into English. It's fairly dense. In places there are these obscure sections that are hard to f sort of uh, relate to the present day. Um, Roger Boucher uh, has done some really good work that introduces uh, uh, Kautilya's uh, work in, in a more digestible form. Um, there, there are others. There is increasing scholarship uh, among the Indian uh, scholarly and, and strategic community on Kautilya now. So uh, I, I would probably approach it that way. Um, there's a whole section in there on poisons and how to make this and that kind of poison. It's kind of, kind of a little obscure, you know. <laughs> maybe and, don't take it to and, the and to maybe, the airport with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Heavy book too, so maybe it would be bad to carry on a plane. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, what do you think are the major challenges or pitfalls, or the the little thing that people have to keep in the back of their mind as they read or think about Caltilia? Well, so in addition to what I had said before about the, the denseness of the text and the translation, all of that, th those are challenges to, to the cat. It's not a book you pick up to read on the beach in the summer, you know. It's not I'll, I'll, I'll take note of that. Yeah, it's not really a light reading. But, um, but you can read it as you probably should read all the ancient texts that we study at places like the war colleges you should probably read it with an eye towards how does it help explain the present and the future uh, of war? What is sort of of enduring relevance uh, from the text? And, and um, I tried to give an example earlier of the war elephants where, that I thought is a, is, a, is a good example of that where you have this sort of almost kind of humorous when we read it we sort of get this mental image of guys riding on elephants into battle shooting arrows or whatever and and yet it's it's you can you can easily see sort of tank formations or aircraft uh, carriers or, or something like that very expensive you don't want to risk them because you know if you lose them there you can't replace them right away it takes time to grow an elephant you know so <laughs> uh, and train it to withstand the rigors of a battlefield and all that sort of thing yeah, the and, f-35 certainly is is no right, different from right, that right or the f-35 or the or the uh, gerald ford class aircraft carriers or the main battle to anyway any of those things uh, represent expensive major commitments and of course they're going to do major damage if you're committing them you're committing yourself now to a destructive war which brings um, all of the challenges of a post-war situation of rebuilding the peace because it's very clear in the text uh, you're the king there's a whole section actually several sections of the text that are just advising the king how to rule and the king is, is enjoined to be an enlightened ruler, to always have the well-being of the people foremost in his mind. And one of the reasons for that is that the people create the wealth that can allow the state to be strong, sort of militarily. Um, the other reason, or another reason, is that the king should 
should uh, uh, you know develop its reputation so that when he conquers a neighboring country he the people are not the people that he's fighting against it's the opposing government or regime and those people should then sort of willingly join with with his country so so you know you don't want to have your war elephants or your F-35s out there destroying the country and killing a lot of civilians you'd much rather use one of the other kinds of war if you must use violence. Because wars end, and when they end, you need you need to recreate peace, peace, and a, a functioning economy and society and things like that. Maybe not peace in the Chaldean sense of the world, but a, a stable, broader polity, like you're saying. Right. What about? Um, you, you talked about Chaldea being lost for a long time and sort of experiencing a renaissance now. What would you say to contemporary? strategists or policymakers or students, um, why, should, why should they care about what Kaltuya has to, to say? So Kaltuya is the first great realist, as I said before, um, and in many senses he gives us a, a starker, clearer distillation of realism than the realism that we've grown accustomed to in the late 20th and the early 21st century with all of its different variants and is it defensive or offensive or structural or you know all this international relations theory. His is very clear cut. It's conquer or be conquered. You gotta be strong. You gotta be willing to go on the offense, right? You gotta conquer because otherwise you're gonna eventually Somebody's be conquered. coming after you. And, and 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 it's a fundamentally self-help system out there. I mean, you can make alliances, but everyone understands that every alliance is a version of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's an alliance of convenience, and God help you if you're Poland caught in between, right? In the case of that example from uh, World War II, um, and so uh, you know, I think in many respects modern-day strategists should look at Kaltia for the clarity and purity of his realism and how it's, it's constructed very rationally based on understanding the world that, his, that existed at his time. Uh, and then, uh, as, I, as I have said recently uh, in a lecture um, and in a recent article, uh, when I look at the the sort of new hybrid war or Gerasimov doctrine of uh, Russia, a lot of talk in the U.S. military circles about how Russia is doing war now, how they see war, what hacking and cyber attacks and little green men and threats and economic uh, 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 pressures on neighboring countries, what this represents as a new Russian way of war. Russia, of course, says this is what the U.S. does, and they're just learning from the U.S. So there's this big debate going on about all of this. And I look at this and say, this is Kaltia. Kaltia was saying this, you know, 2,000 years ago. He was saying, you use all your instruments, you, you, you do the quiet things with the spies and the secret agents, with the cobras to slip into somebody's bed or whatever, you know, that you're doing all of that in the same way that we're maybe now doing with higher technology 
approaches, but nonetheless the same concept is there. So it's, it's, it's got great relevance in, in allowing us to understand what goes on in the world today by, by adversaries and allies and others in the world. And then lastly, I would say to that, that in particular, when we look at the new great game going on today, if I can use that term. In, can you clarify for our listeners what that is? I'm sorry. Uh, so in the 19th century, uh, Imperial Britain, Imperial Russia competed in and around Afghanistan, Central Asia, Iran, Nepal, Tibet, you know, all that area. Uh, they competed with each other through their intelligence services and local proxies in what came to be called the Great Game. Um, there were uh, three uh, British wars in Afghanistan that we often talk about as sort of uh, points on that uh, long history of uh, rivalry, rivalry with the Russian Empire during that time. Uh, so by new Great Game, I'm referring to the competition between the modern-day actors that are in and around Afghanistan, so the United States, Russia, China, India, Pakistan, Iran, uh, so many uh, major powers or at least regional powers. It's a powers. Crowded, crowded space, right? It's a crowded space, and they're all um, engaged in this competition there uh, in that general region uh, today. Um, and the, so the new great game in and around Afghanistan is a modern-day sort of manifestation of the, of the Mandela theory of uh, foreign policy that I talked about before when I was going to uh, take your farm and, uh, right. and, <laughs> and, and then eventually conquer my ally. And then go after your old ally, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, and, and so forth and so on, until I control my entire subdevelopment. So, uh, so Then you're going to be in charge of all the HOA stuff, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe there's a <laughs> it downside It has, has consequences. But, uh, but in many respects, we see a lot of this today. We see India and Pakistan competing in Afghanistan. Well, think about it from the Indian perspective and the Mandala theory. What is on the backside of Pakistan from the Indian point of view? It's Afghanistan. So India has developed a strategic partnership with Afghanistan. Indian, uh, you know, uh, engineers and various uh, Indian businesses and so forth are in Afghanistan. So from the Pakistani point of view, they're looking at this through the Mandala theory, again, if you apply that, and they're saying, oh, they're trying to make common cause with our, our neighbor and create problems for us in Pakistan. Now, the, the truth is somewhere between both of these perspectives, but the point is that um, the world from New Delhi or from Islamabad or from Kabul looks a, like, a lot like the world uh, from uh, Kautia's time. And in fact, uh, uh, in 2012, the uh, former Indian National Security Advisor Shiv Shankar Menon said, uh, and Indians are increasingly looking to Kautia in their scholarly and strategic uh, uh, discourse, uh, but he said the world we face today is similar to the world that Kautia operated in. And I always remind uh, my students at the War College what one of our former uh, South Asian officers here uh, said when I gave the first lecture on Kautia at the War College. 
um, and students asked him about it, and he said, you know, I don't even know if the people in the U.S. Embassy in New, De New Delhi realize that the uh, diplomatic enclave there is called Chanakya Puri, meaning the, 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 the area of Chanakya, you know, um, which contains Chandragupta and Kautilya streets. Uh, so the, the embassies of the foreign countries are sitting in New Delhi in a, in a, in a section of the city named for this great thinker from their past. I think that's a new twist on geography is destiny. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it is in a way. But I mean, I think it does sort of tell us that at least there's a section of the world that has their whole strategic outlook very shaped by this particular, largely, as you said at the outset, unknown to our Western, uh, Western audiences. Uh, this very sort of um, lost to history almost uh, writer and thinker. So I mean, I, I hope that that's that this conversation maybe helps uh, your listeners. But a, a writer and thinker that can help us understand both uh, a long ago and far away historical context, but also that might give insight into contemporary uh, strategy and politics in the region but also uh, at a more theoretical level even than that uh, to understand the relationship between states and actors on an international stage. So I think there's, I think you've given us great reasons to, to engage uh, more deeply with uh, Kautilya and, and his writings and his ideas. Um, so I'm gonna go home and probably think about elephants. Um, <laughs> Better than cobras, better maybe. Better than cobras <laughs> in my bed. Um, but I, I thank you for your time. Thanks for joining me. And thanks for telling us uh, a little bit more about Kautilya and some of the, of the things that he has, has left us with. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.